Hi, this is David Stein, and this is a special bonus edition of Money for the Rest of Us. Today, October 25th, 2019, my book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, is available, at least the ebook on Kindle, Nook, and other platforms. As I mentioned earlier this week on episode 274, my publisher, McGraw-Hill, has delayed the release of the hardcover edition due to printing and folding errors on the dust jackets. The new release date for the hardcover is November 19th. The audiobook should be available in December. The good news is you don't have to wait until then. You can buy the ebook and read it today. To celebrate, I am publishing this bonus episode of the podcast with excerpts from the book, the introduction, and chapter one, so you can get a taste of what the book is about and how the material is presented. Also, I wanted to let you know that next Wednesday, I will be hosting an Ask Me Anything on Reddit. It is Wednesday, October 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me on AMA on Reddit. Finally, after you've had a chance to read the book, please leave a review on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, as your feedback will be invaluable in encouraging those unfamiliar with my work to purchase the book. Thanks for your help. Now... Here is the introduction and chapter one of Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. I recorded this last week at Epicenter Recording Studio in Phoenix. Introduction. Several years ago, I met an exterminator at our farm in Teton Valley, Idaho. The 80-acre investment property and vacation home has sweeping views of barley fields and the Teton mountain range. Elk and moose frequent the land, and the mountain bluebirds flit from tree to tree. Our dream property had two problems. The first was a mice infestation in the house, hence the exterminator. The second problem was more serious. Across the road and down a bit from our farm, an abandoned gravel pit that had sat idle for almost a decade was again in full operation. Every few minutes, a dump truck loaded with gravel drove past our house, stirring up dust. The silence that attracted us to this beautiful spot was broken. A rock crusher operated at the gravel pit 12 hours a day. The great bargain we thought we got when we purchased the farm at the bottom of the housing collapse no longer seemed so attractive. The exterminator and I chatted as he placed bait boxes around the house. I mentioned to him I used to be an institutional investment advisor and now taught individuals about money, investing, and the economy on my podcast and membership community. He turned to me and asked, how much can someone earn per year investing in stocks? Before I could reply, he answered his own question. I think 80% is reasonable. It turns out he had bought his first stock earlier that year, and it had appreciated over 80%. That was the rate of return that now anchored his expectations. He was unpersuaded by my attempt to explain what determined stock returns and why his expectations were off by a factor of 10. Making investment mistakes is normal. The exterminator and I both made investment mistakes. His was he didn't really understand how stocks worked, so his expectations were unrealistic. And mine was falling in love with a piece of real estate without adequately researching the status of the nearby gravel pit. Making investment mistakes is normal. All investors, even highly successful hedge funds, make mistakes. Ned Davis, a renowned investor and market technician, said, We are in the business of making mistakes. The only difference between the winners and the losers is that the winners make small mistakes while the losers make big mistakes. 
As individuals saving and investing for retirement, we need to get comfortable with the fact we will make some mistakes. We can't let the fear of doing so keep us from investing. At the same time, we can't afford to make big investment mistakes. Being a loser in that realm means running out of money during retirement or not being able to retire at all. Over my investment career, I've interviewed hundreds of money managers, including stock investors, bond managers, hedge funds, and venture capitalists, in order to understand how they invest. I always ask them to give me an example of an investment mistake they made and what they learned from it. Not only have I learned from other investors' mistakes, but I have also learned from my own. I advised and made financial recommendations to dozens of endowments and foundations with billions of dollars of assets. Some of my recommendations worked out, while others were mistakes. As chief portfolio and investment strategist, I also had day-to-day responsibility for managing a $2 billion investment portfolio, guiding it through the 2008 global financial crisis with clients and partners evaluating and critiquing every portfolio move, including my mistakes. Warren Buffett, one of the most successful investors ever, has said we beat ourselves up too much over our mistakes, yet we all do it. I remember my investment mistakes way more than I remember my successes. One reason we are so hard on ourselves about our mistakes is we have a difficult time separating a bad outcome from the decision-making process. Professional poker player and decision-making specialist Annie Duke, in her book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, wrote, What makes a decision great is not that it has a great outcome. A great decision is a result of a good process. Decisions are bets on the future, and they aren't right or wrong based on whether they turn out well on any particular iteration. An unwanted result doesn't make our decisions wrong if we thought about the alternatives and probabilities in advance and allocated our resources accordingly. Sometimes investments don't work out as expected. But that does not mean it was a mistake if the decision was well thought out. We have to take what we can learn from the experience and move on to the next investment opportunity. You are a portfolio manager. When it comes to investing, you and I are portfolio managers. Portfolio managers compare different investment opportunities and allocate money among them. A key aim of this book is to teach you a framework, a good process for making those allocation decisions so that even if there is an occasional bad outcome, the impact on your financial livelihood is small. In the face of extreme uncertainty, a disciplined investment process can give you confidence and peace of mind when others are overwhelmed with the number of financial choices or panicking during the latest market sell-off. An investment discipline can help you overcome the fear of making mistakes while avoiding large ones. A Different Kind of Investing Book I no longer manage money professionally. Now my biggest financial challenge is the same as yours, making sure I have enough money to retire and that those resources last. For the past five years, I've hosted one of the world's most popular investment podcasts, Money for the Rest of Us. Listeners often ask if there is a book I can recommend that will teach them how to invest. There are, of course, a lot of investing books. Many are for beginners, walking readers through the steps of opening up a brokerage account, explaining what an index fund is, and discussing why it is important to save and diversify. Other investment books get into the nitty-gritty details of trying to beat the stock market by employing value investing or momentum strategies trading options or foreign currencies, or building a portfolio of real estate investments. This book is different. Although it includes plenty of information on various investment strategies, its main goal is to take a step back and show you how to evaluate investment opportunities so that you can decide whether you should even be trading options 
building out a real estate portfolio, or trying to beat the stock market by investing like Warren Buffett. This book is organized into a 10-question framework for analyzing any investment so you can avoid big mistakes and increase your odds at profiting from successful investments no matter what they are. In short, this book is for investors who are portfolio and asset class focused, who have demonstrated the discipline to save and invest for retirement, and who want to make sure they are doing everything they can to confidently protect and grow their wealth. What you will learn. The truth is, you don't need to be an expert to be a successful investor. We are able to navigate many complex domains without being an expert. These domains include managing our homes and businesses, traveling the world, and playing a sport. We navigate complexity through rules of thumb, heuristics that guide our actions. In this book, I share rules of thumb to guide your investment decisions. You will learn about the answers to these questions. What is the difference between investing, speculating, and gambling? How do you determine an investment's expected return, its potential upside, and its potential downside? What is required to beat the stock market, and should you try? How do you build a diversified portfolio without getting bogged down in the minutia of modern portfolio theory? What is the difference between exchange-traded funds, ETFs, mutual funds, and closed-end funds, and what are the risks of each? Does using passive index funds mean you should be passive in all areas of your investing? Is it better to invest a lump sum all at once or to dollar cost average? Should you own gold or cryptocurrencies? And should you trade foreign currencies? Should you pursue dividend investing or invest outside your home country? And much, much more. This book is designed to be approachable and helpful to both beginners and those that have been investing on their own for years. It is a book that you can feel good about sharing with others, and I would be honored if you would do so. Many of the quotes I've included in this book are from investment mentors. Some I have met in person, but most I have not. These are virtual mentors, individuals whose approach to investing and managing risk I have followed and admired for years. I have included these quotes not only to reinforce the book's core principles, but also to serve as a reminder of how much we can learn about investing from the experience of others. I don't know how my exterminator's stock portfolio is doing, but our investment in our Teton Valley farm worked out despite the gravel pit. We split the property into two 40-acre parcels and sold the parcel with the house, pastures, barn, and other outbuildings to a woman who is operating it as an overnight camp and retreat center for those that want to work with horses and experience living on a ranch. We will more than likely sell her the remaining 40 acres as her new enterprise becomes more established. We broke even on the investment financially, and if we factor in the wonderful experiences we had with family and friends on the property, then we came out well ahead. Chapter 1. What is it? If we can't explain an investment, then we shouldn't invest. Question 1. What is it? Before we invest, we should seek to understand and explain in simple terms an investment's characteristics. The act of explaining keeps us humble and helps us realize what we don't know. Answering the 10 questions discussed in this book forms an investment discipline that can give us confidence in the face of uncertainty. Do you remember your first stock investment? I bought my first stock when I was in graduate school, getting an MBA with an emphasis in finance. The stock was Novell. Every night after school, I watched the nightly business report on PBS to see how the stock performed that day. This was 1991, so it was several years before you could browse the web to get instant access to stock quotes. Several years earlier, I had worked for a subsidiary of Novell as a temp employee while living in Provo, Utah. 
My job consisted of assembling instruction manuals for NetWare, Novell's leading product. Peter Lynch, the renowned mutual fund manager, is famous for his advice, invest in what you know. I knew Novell, well, at least I knew of it. I had worked there after all. Later, Lynch clarified what he meant. I never said if you go to a mall, see a Starbucks, and say it's good coffee, you should call Fidelity Brokerage and buy the stock. People buy a stock and they know nothing about it. That's gambling, and it's not good. My investment thesis for buying Novell was I thought the stock would go up because it did something with computer networking. What, exactly? I wasn't sure. And computers were getting ever more popular. I did no research on the company. I knew nothing about the industry or what was going on with the economy. I had no idea whether the stock was expensive or cheap. I simply took $1,000, about 25% of my wife's and my life savings, and bought it because I thought it would go up. In short, I gambled. Buying Novell's stock would be the first, but not the last time I invested in something because I thought it would go up in price without stopping to consider why. Clearly, a stock rises in price because other investors are willing to pay more. But why are they willing to pay more? For example, on September 17, 2017, the stock of Camping World, a retailer of recreation vehicles, jumped over 7%. What changed that would explain why investors collectively were willing to transact for Camping World stock at a 7% higher price on a day when the overall U.S. stock market rose 0.3%? It turns out that Camping World's chief executive officer was interviewed on CNBC to provide more clarity on the company's strategy regarding recent acquisitions. He also said he had personally bought more of the company's stock. After his remarks, investors collectively decided the price of Camping World stock was wrong and its correct price should be 7% higher. Financial theory states that the correct price of a stock is the value in today's dollars of a company's future cash flow in terms of the share of the profits it pays to the shareholders, the owners of the stock. That percentage of profits distributed to shareholders is called a dividend. The value today of those future dividends per share of stock is known as the present value or intrinsic value. The correct price of a stock share should equal the present value of that dividend stream. Another way to think about present value is that it is the value that makes an investor indifferent to receiving cash today or cash in the future. We will explore present value in more detail in Chapter 4. One challenge with investing is no one knows for sure what the right price is for a stock because no one knows what the future dividends will be. In addition, some stocks don't currently pay dividends and won't for many years into the future. The primary reason to buy an individual stock Here, then, is the most important principle I know when it comes to stock investing. The primary reason to buy an individual stock rather than a basket of stocks via an index mutual fund or exchange-traded fund, ETF, is if you believe the current stock price is too low. We don't buy a stock because we think the company will grow fast or because it has cool products, as they did with Novell. We primarily buy a stock because we believe other investors are wrong, that they have underestimated what the company's future profit and dividend growth will be, that the present value of future dividends per share is higher than the current share price. Why? Because the stock will only go up in price if the company does better than the consensus view. In other words, if the company surprises to the upside. I seldom buy individual stocks, which are also known as equities, because I'm not willing to spend the time researching them to determine if investors are wrong and the stock is mispriced. Fortunately, in the case of Novell, I got lucky, and the stock appreciated. I sold it a year or so later to help fund the down payment on our first home. My investment in Novell's stock epitomizes how not to invest.
Had I asked myself the 10 questions detailed in this book that we should all ask when considering a new investment, I never would have bought the stock. And I wouldn't have even needed to ask myself 10 questions. Simply asking the first question, what is it, would have helped me realize I didn't know what I was doing. If you can't explain it, don't invest. One of my first investment advisory clients was a liberal arts college in Indiana. At one of our meetings, the chair of the college's investment committee said to me, if I can't explain an investment we are considering to another board member who isn't on the committee, then we shouldn't invest. That is one of the most helpful pieces of investment advice I have ever received. I definitely couldn't explain what Novell's business was when I invested or why its stock was priced too low. But my naivety went beyond that. I didn't even have a good understanding of where my money was going or who had sold me the stock. When I invested in Novell, I bought the stock through my broker, who facilitated the trade on the NASDAQ stock exchange. Novell never saw the money. My money went to whomever sold me the stock. The stock traded in what is known as the secondary market. The only time a company gets money for a stock is when the company issues new stock shares as part of an initial public offering or a secondary offering. Once those shares are issued and the company collects the proceeds, then the shares trade among investors in the secondary market. Who is selling it? If Novell wasn't selling me the stock, then in my quest to understand the investment, I should have stopped to consider who was selling the stock to me and why. We often do that when we buy a house or a used car. Knowing why someone is selling a house or a car is important information that helps us negotiate the price. If we know the seller is highly motivated to get rid of an item, our initial offer might be less than if the seller seems ambivalent about closing a sale. Of course, there is a brokerage firm that stands between us and the seller when we buy a stock, so we never know exactly who is selling the shares to us. Yet knowing the type of entities that dominate trading in a particular asset category is critical to deciding if and how we want to participate. In 1952, three years after the renowned investor Benjamin Graham published The Intelligent Investor, his classic book on value investing, 75% of stocks were held directly by households. That meant when Benjamin Graham bought a stock in 1952, he knew much more about it than the household selling it. He had an informational edge that allowed him to determine the stock was mispriced, and he was rewarded with outsized returns. By the time I bought Novell in 1991, 42% of stocks were held directly by households. Pension plans, insurance companies, and mutual funds were significant players in the stock market. Many of those pension plans and insurance companies hired outside money managers to manage portfolios for them. In other words, there was a professional class of investors who spent hour upon hour researching companies and valuing stocks. In that environment, it was unlikely I would have any type of informational edge compared with the seller to determine if Novell's stock was priced too low even if I had done some preliminary research. Now markets have changed again, and when you buy a stock, it is most likely an institution's computer algorithm that sold it to you. We may not know as much as we think. When considering a new investment, we should first ask, what is it? We should be able to explain in simple terms where the money is going, who is selling it to us, and how the money will be used to generate a positive return. Similar to my former client, if we are unable to explain the investment to a family member or friend in a way that the person can understand, then we shouldn't invest. In 2017, there was a mania surrounding cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. That year, the price of Bitcoin went from less than $1,000 per coin to over $19,000. Many investors around the world began investing in Bitcoin for the first time. I am convinced that most of the new Bitcoin buyers, if asked, what is it, 
would have been unable to explain in detail what Bitcoin is and how it works. There is a critical reason why we need to be able to answer what is it before we invest. The simple act of trying to explain an investment keeps us humble and helps us realize what we don't know. Cognitive scientists Frank Keel and Leon Rosenblatt conducted numerous studies asking people to explain how something as simple as a zipper worked. They found that as individuals tried to verbalize what they knew about a topic, they soon realized they didn't know as much as they thought. The exercise of explaining humbled them. The fear of missing out on a hot opportunity like Bitcoin often leads us to be overconfident. We are convinced that we know more than we actually do. By pausing to answer what is it, in as much detail as possible, we can see where we have gaps in our understanding and seek to fill them. Dealing with Unknowns Ray Dalio, founder of the hedge fund Bridgewater Associates and one of the world's most successful investors, wrote, Whatever success I've had in life has more to do with my knowing how to deal with my not knowing than anything I know. As we seek to explain what an investment is, we will find there are some things about the investment that are unknowable. One reason there are so many unknowns when it comes to investing is because financial markets are a nonlinear, complex, adaptive system. Let me explain what that is with the following anecdote. Several years ago, I saw an approaching summer thunderstorm as I drove toward my home in southeastern Idaho. The storm didn't look terribly menacing. There were a few cumulonimbus clouds overhead, the type that pass through that time of year and sometimes bring rain and sometimes don't. Only this time, the clouds stalled over my town, dropping two inches of rain in less than an hour, almost 15% of our annual rainfall with one storm. Flooding ensued. Canals overflowed. Streets became rivers. Basements were inundated with water. The storm's severity was completely unexpected. The Weather Bureau didn't predict it. It was also very localized. A few miles north and south of my home, it didn't rain at all. Thunderstorms are an example of a nonlinear system which is a system that does not produce the same result every time, even though the inputs and conditions are the same. Another example of nonlinearity is a pile of sand. If sand is dropped from above, one grain at a time, it will create a cone-shaped pile that seems relatively stable. At some point, though, a grain of sand will hit the pile and trigger an avalanche. You would think the quantity of sand in the pile would be roughly the same each time an avalanche starts, but that is not the case. An avalanche can be triggered with only a few hundred grains of sand or thousands. The timing of an avalanche is not a function of the size of the pile, but the dynamic interaction among the grains of sand, how they shift and slide relative to each other, their interdependence. The more grains of sand, the more interactions, and the more difficult it becomes to predict when an avalanche will occur. Complex Adaptive Systems Financial markets like piles of sand and thunderstorms are also nonlinear. They are a special class of nonlinearity called a complex adaptive system. Unlike a sand pile that is composed solely of sand, a complex adaptive system is composed of a wide variety of interconnected inputs that adapt and learn over time. There are millions of individual agents, both human and computer, that make up the financial markets, each striving to interpret ream upon ream of data about the economy, politics, business, technology, and human nature. Since market inputs are diverse and adapt over time, the interactions are even more complex than those found within a sand pile, making it impossible to predict when the next market avalanche will occur. It could be this year or it could be in five. Now, just because we can't accurately predict when a huge market sell-off will occur doesn't mean we invest blindly. 
Even though weather forecasters couldn't predict that a storm would come to a standstill and deluge my town, meteorologists knew enough about atmospheric conditions to estimate that there was a higher risk of a thunderstorm in my area that day than on a typical day. And when the severity of the storm became apparent, they issued a warning so people could take cover. In other words, meteorologists reacted to the information they had. Reacting to available information. If we invest in something without seeking to understand its characteristics, then that is like embarking on a lengthy wilderness expedition while ignoring everything that could be known about the climate, weather conditions, and terrain where we will be hiking. Doing so is reckless. When Ray Dalio says his success has more to do with knowing how to deal with his not knowing, that does not mean he doesn't spend a great deal of time learning what can be known. Dalio says he loves to find people who disagree with him so he can see through their eyes what he might be missing. One of his favorite quotes is, He who lives by the crystal ball is destined to eat ground glass. He then went on to say, I had eaten enough glass to realize that what was most important wasn't knowing the future. It was knowing how to react appropriately to the information available at each point in time. Accurately forecasting the future is extremely difficult. In the year 1900, John Elfrith Watkins Jr. published an article in Ladies Home Journal titled, What May Happen in the Next Hundred Years? He envisioned a world in the year 2000 where strawberries were as big as apples and peas were as large as beets. A world where mosquitoes, flies, and roaches had been exterminated and horses were nearly extinct. A land where packages were delivered through a network of pneumatic tubes and the letters C, X, and Q had been eliminated from the everyday English alphabet in order to simplify it. Most of his predictions were wrong, although some were correct. Watkins correctly predicted wireless telephones and the television. Imagine trying to pick investments based on those predictions. Even if you believed a television was possible, which company would you invest in? Which television manufacturer would survive? Which television company's stock was mispriced because investors were underestimating the company's future dividends? Why accurately predicting the future is so difficult? Investing would be easy if we could accurately see the future, but we can't. Our imagined details are heavily influenced by our present attitudes, feelings, and knowledge. Most predictions end up being an extrapolation of current trends. We view the future through the lens of the present. What gets left out of predictions is the unpredictable, the unexpected events and surprises. It is these surprises that often have the greatest impact on the future. They are the game changers that can swamp the incremental improvements and current trends. As predictions become more detailed, there are a lot more surprises that could upend those predictions. That's another reason I rarely invest in individual stocks. I find that when I make specific predictions about what will happen to a company, usually something happens that I hadn't even considered. There is a better way. As individual investors, if we don't have any particular insight about whether a specific stock is priced correctly or not, we can instead own baskets of hundreds, if not thousands of stocks via a commingled investment vehicle, such as an index mutual fund or ETF. That way we can benefit from positive surprises that drive up stock market prices without having to predict what those surprises will be. Stocks are an example of a security, a tradable financial instrument in which an investor has an ownership right. A basket or group of securities with similar characteristics is known as an asset class. As individual investors, we are more likely to be successful if we focus on asset classes rather than individual securities. We can invest in asset classes through exchange-traded funds and mutual funds that are sponsored and managed by professional investment advisor teams.
investing on the leading edge of the present. Ned Davis, who has more than 50 years of investment experience, recounted how his stock forecasts had been so good that in 1978, Louis Rukeyser, host of the Wall Street Week broadcast, said, Ned Davis has had an astounding record in recent years and has been absolutely right about most of the major ups and downs. Yet Ned Davis found that at the end of each year, he hadn't made much money. He wrote, Before someone else could question me, I asked myself, If you are so smart, why aren't you rich? It was about that time, 1978 to 1980, that I began to realize that smarts, hard work, and even a burning desire to be right were really not my problems or the solution to my problems. My real problems were a failure to cut losses short, a lack of discipline and risk management, letting my ego color my market view, which made it difficult to admit mistakes, and difficulty controlling fear and greed. It was thus a lack of proper investment strategy and good money management techniques, not poor forecasting that was holding me back. By investment strategy and risk management, Davis is referring to the same process Ray Dalio described. React appropriately to the information available at each point in time. I call this investing on the leading edge of the present. Answering the questions I share in this book before you invest in a new opportunity will give you critical information to act appropriately, even in the face of many unknowns. The Math and Emotion of Investing When considering an investment opportunity, we need to understand the math and the emotion. By math, I mean understanding the mechanics of what drives the returns of a particular investment how bond returns are primarily driven by current interest rate yields, how stock returns are driven by dividend and corporate profit growth, how real estate returns are driven by rents. In other words, the math of investing involves understanding how a particular security or asset class generates cash flow. Business owners and potential buyers do the same thing as they assess how a business generates cash flow. The emotion of investing is about understanding how investors are valuing investment cash flows. When investors place a high value on investment cash flows bidding up security prices, then subsequent returns will be lower. When investors are fearful and place a low value on an investment's expected cash flow, then subsequent returns will be higher. Why will returns be higher? Because when an asset class's valuation is lower than normal and investors are pessimistic, there is a greater likelihood that individual securities in that basket will surprise to the upside. The asset class is embedded with future positive surprises. On the flip side, there's a greater likelihood for negative surprises when purchasing a basket of richly valued securities that is priced for perfection. Knowing the math and emotions surrounding an asset class at a given point in time is like being the meteorologist who knew conditions were ripe for a thunderstorm on that summer day when my Idaho town was deluged, even if they didn't know exactly where a storm might hit. Knowing the math and emotion of an asset class what I call investment conditions, is investing on the leading edge of the present. Of course, a critical aspect of investing is controlling our own emotions. We can't get caught up in the hype and fear that drives other investors into a frenzy or panic. An investing framework. When we are first exposed to a new investment opportunity, we are often unable to answer the question, what is it? We have to figure out what it is by using the remaining nine questions I discuss in this book. These questions help us determine the math and the emotion surrounding the specific investment opportunity. We will come to know how the returns are generated, how investor emotions are influencing the expected returns, what is the downside, what are the fees, what is the investment vehicle, what are the tax consequences, and what has to happen for the investment to be successful. In addition, answering these questions helps us realize the limit of our understanding, that there is much we don't know. 
Not knowing helps us not become overconfident and make big investment mistakes. Collectively, these questions form an investment discipline that can give us confidence in the face of uncertainty. Chapter Summary When considering a new investment, we should first ask, what is it? We should be able to explain in simple terms where the money is going, who is selling it to us, and how the money will be used to generate a positive return. If we don't have any particular insight about whether a specific stock is priced correctly or not, then it is better to own baskets of hundreds, if not thousands of stocks via commingled investment vehicles like index mutual funds or ETFs. The act of trying to explain an investment keeps us humble and helps us realize what we don't know and what can't be known. If we are unable to explain an investment to a family member or friend in a way that the person can understand, then we shouldn't invest. Knowledge about the math and the emotion surrounding an investment helps us to do the right thing at the right time while avoiding mistakes. The math of investing involves understanding how a particular security or asset class generates cash flow. The emotion of investing is about understanding how investors are valuing those investment cash flows.